Morning, everybody. If you're new to the church, I'm Justin DeBerry, senior pastor. Uh, we're in the book of Revelation. If you'd open your Bibles with me, we'll be in chapter 11 this week. And we got a lot, of get, lot to get to today. If you read ahead, you're probably like, whoa, what is going on here? <laughs> chapter 11. If you recall, we're in kind of an interlude, a, a pause in the drama of Revelation where the Lord is addressing the church, speaking to the church on earth for our benefit as we live in this time between the times. <clears throat> Read along with me, Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. It is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <sighs> Heavenly Father, uh, We pray for illumination today. Thank you for your faithfulness to uh, help us with this great book, this challenging book of Revelation. It's been so encouraging to hear how you're working in people's lives, how you're opening their eyes to the truth, the beauty, the hope, the encouragement that we find here. We pray, Lord, that that would continue. We know that we do not need more revelation than what you have given us. We need illumination of the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you...
turn the lights on for us. Maybe for some for the first time today. But for many of us, again and again and again, take us deeper into who you are and what you are doing in this world. Such an important time. Today is the day of salvation. Today. For we are not promised tomorrow. And so, Lord, I pray you would be placing your finger on the idols of our hearts. Forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for our lack of witness. For how we prefer our comfort. We prefer to preserve our relationships. We, we don't take risks for your kingdom. Forgive us. And we are thankful that Jesus is our righteousness, shining, perfect, immutable for us through faith. We don't live up to our calling, but we ask by your grace that we would a little bit more this week, a little bit more as we get closer to heaven, that we would be a little more faithful to testify to who you are to a world that so badly needs you. Speak to us today, we ask, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be real with you. This is a hard passage to interpret. This, this is a top five difficult passage. Uh, when I get to heaven and I, I give an account to my Lord Jesus for all my preaching and teaching, um, this may be one that he has a few, you know, Things written in red on the paper, okay, for me. You know, your heart was in the right place, but do you see this here? Didn't quite get that. I acknowledge that. I recognize that. Uh, we can have different differences of opinion on exactly what's happening here. You know, we want to emphasize and we want to hold with a closed hand and more dogmatically the things that are clear in Scripture. Tracking with that? And we want to hold with an open hand and less dogmatically, the things that are less clear in Scripture. Not all Scripture is equally clear. Now, you can't miss the gospel. Okay, we're going to hold on really, really, really tight to that. You're going to have to kill me before I let go of that. But there are other things where, in the Lord's wisdom, He has not made them as clear. And, and you know, we don't skip the hard stuff around here. You know that. As tempted as I was this week... Uh, you know, to fake an injury and, and have to hand things off. Um, Jesus said, okay, I want you to, to study it up, I want you to pray it up, and I want you to preach it. So that's what I'm going to do, to the best of my ability, trying to apply the principles that Revelation itself gives us for how we should interpret it. Remember, we talked about that at the very beginning of the series. We don't want to come with our own, you know, well, it must be this way, or I have to take it this way. We say, okay, I want to take Scripture on its own terms. What does it tell me about itself that helps me interpret it? That, that's my goal. So I, I'm going to try my best. Thank you for your patience, but uh, we got to do it. And we're going to get into the details, and there's a lot of them. But let me start by giving you the big picture. The two witnesses are the church. The two witnesses are the church. God's people, this is a picture of God sending His people out into the wilderness. Sheep among wolves in this world. 
And you say, well, that doesn't sound very good. (laughs) That doesn't sound very exciting to me. But remember, in Revelation and even in this passage, we're going to see God protects us as He sends us. He protects us. Spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking. Listen, when it comes to your salvation and being a Christian, you know Jesus, you're invincible. You're invincible. No one can take that from you. Nothing that happens to you can take that from you. If if you are Christ and He is yours, that's it. But do you see how it works? He protects us and sends us. He seals us and sends us. He makes it very, very clear. I got you. Now go and it's going to be really hard. Those things go together. This is what we struggle with as parents, isn't it? We, we, you know, I don't want to send my kid into certain situations because I can't protect them. I don't want to send them to that college because the bad ideology is going to get in them and I can't stop it. I, I don't want to send them to that school because there's some mean girls there and I can't do anything about it for eight hours out of the day. I don't want them to be in that group of friends. I don't want you to go there because I can't protect you. God doesn't have that tension because He's God. He can protect you anywhere you are from anyone. And so He sends you under His protection. You're at a job where you're the only Christian in the whole company. I got you. You're in a school where you're the weird Christian Jesus freak. I got you. You're in a family where they're hostile to your faith. You're the only Christian, maybe. You know, you bring up God, it's like you said, fire in an elevator. Everybody just gets up and leaves. Like, what happened here? He, He has you. You're in a country brutally persecuting Christians. He's definitely got you. Listen, wherever He sends you, that's where He is. You are not there by accident. That is exactly where you are supposed to be, wherever it is that you are. So if I can challenge you, don't be anxious. Don't complain. Don't be afraid. Wherever that hard context is for you, he's got you. He puts you there. He's promised to protect you spiritually. He's promised to give you power. Now, all the language here in this passage is legal. You sense that? It's legal. The word witness in the Greek, it's martus, where we get the word martyr. Martureo is the verb. It's a legal connotation. Think of a courtroom. I, I had the privilege of one summer to spend interning for a judge in Pennsylvania. I got to witness a lot of court cases. I got to sit in the courtroom. I got to be around it all. And one of my takeaways was it's hard to be a witness. It's hard to be on the stand. You are under fire. There are people watching in the gallery. Uh, People's lives are hanging on your testimony. It's hard to be a witness. Think of the honor that God gives you by putting you on the stand. 
when he is on trial. That's exactly what he does. As the world puts God on trial, he says, okay, to prove to the world that I am God, I call as my first witness Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And as my second, and there's a long list after that, I call my people to the stand to testify that I am God with their life. What an honor. Jesus did it first, perfectly. Now it's our turn. We're on the stand. This is what, okay, if you have a, a, a thoughtful doctrine of the church, which we hope that we do, this is why being a member, a part of a church matters because we're saying to the world, when you look at this person, to some degree you see Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. You're on the stand. As a witness. So listen, being a Christian is many things, but one of them is not, it's boring. Being a Christian is not boring. You always have a purpose. The stakes are always high every day. And I would say, particularly to young people, and maybe to our older generation too, if you're bored, something's wrong. You need to step back. Why do I feel that way? We don't even let our kids use that word. We're not allowed to say bored because there's always someone to serve. There's always a calling to fulfill. Listen, we're not here just to stay alive, to not die. We have a purpose. We have a mission from heaven. exciting to be a Christian and alive right now. I can't think of anything more interesting, more challenging, more fun. There's never a dull day. It's one thing I've learned as a pastor. There's never a dull day, but I think it's true for all Christians. Some of you are laughing because you make my days not dull. Heaven and hell, salvation and judgment hanging in the balance, and God calls us to the stand. You're like, "Mm, Lord, was that wise? But he's with us. He's with us. So we have a mission. All right, let's jump into the text. It's, It's the deep end and the water is cold. Hang in there. Verse 1, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of and those who worship there. What I read here leads me to believe we're talking about the church. To measure something is common language in the Old Testament for protection. God knows his people intimately, uh, who they are, where they are, their circumstances. He measures them in a sense. Uh, Like we know our own kids intimately. You know a lot about them. You're you're locked in. You're paying attention. We even measure them and and, write their height on the wall with a line which the people who buy your house from you really appreciate. Uh, Did you have to write it in pen? Uh, Because I don't really care how tall Nick was at age 11. We're going to paint that wall. But you measure them. You measure them. You're aware of them. That's, That's the idea here. Intimacy, care from the Father. And John is measuring what? 
temple of God. What is the temple of God? Theological pop quiz. What is the temple of God? Is it a physical structure? It's you. It's the people. 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2, Revelation 3. No more temple structures. Christ is the true temple, and by faith you are a living stone in that temple. He is the cornerstone. So I think he's measuring his people here. Verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple, probably the court of the Gentiles. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I think the gist here is that during this age of tribulation, God is going to allow severe persecution of his people. All the temple is holy to him, including the outer court, but he's not going to protect us from every physical, economic, political trouble and trial. For a time, the world's going to trample us, walk all over us. And you feel that at times. 42 months equals 1,260 days equals three and a half years. That took me a while to figure that out. As I've said, I think symbolic for the time between Jesus' first and second coming. I think symbolic of the age that we're living in. And it's not an accident that John uses these numbers. I think for meaning, what the meaning is, he's drawing from the Old Testament. Israel, if you count their initial couple of years of wandering, wandered the wilderness for 42 years. Hmm. Elijah prayed for the rain to stop because of idolatry and no rain for three and a half years. Hmm. Time of testing. Daniel uses the same numbers to describe a period of testing and protection for Israel. Hmm. That's the point. You're in a time of testing. You're in a time of testing. God is with you, and he wants you to pass the test, but we're being tested. 1 Peter 1, we're being tested. And let me say this. When you're in a season of waiting, and some of you are in seasons of waiting that have just started. Some of you are like, I've been waiting for a long time for whatever it is. God has placed you there. And times of waiting are when he does some of his best work. That's hard to believe. He might be showing you in his, his presence in a way you've never felt before. He might be showing you how to look to the needs of others when your own aren't being met. And there's tension. You just feel this tension in your life constantly. He might be showing you areas of sin that you never saw before because you didn't have to wait. Things were just clicking along. He might be strengthening your faith because it's just dragging. It's just dragging out. It's just dragging along. He might be increasing your hope and longing for heaven because you're confronted with the fact that this world is uncertain. It's frail. I made these plans. They're not happening. I, I, I did the right thing. It's not happening. It's vanity. Paul Tripp says it well. God is not so much after the success of your plans 
He's after you. Waiting is not just about what I get at the end of the wait, but about who I become as I wait. Do you hear that? That's so important. Some of us are really wired for this. It's like we want to get things done. We want to wrap it up. We don't want that tension. We don't like it. But God is not mainly after you getting what you want as far as your plans, as good as they may be. And they may be wonderful things. But He's after you. Who you become in the meantime, in the midst of it. That's more important, to become like Jesus. That's the best thing. As good as that thing is, even better thing is to become like Jesus. You with me? Verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, which I'm taking as representing the whole church. Why two? In Old Testament law, you had to have two witnesses for testimony to be valid. So Deuteronomy 19, other places, and we've adopted this in our court system in, in large part. You, gotta, you, you can't just have one person who saw it. You've got to have two. God is saying, my church is going to give valid testimony of who I am. You can trust them. You can believe them. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Come back to that. These... The two witnesses are the olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So you got, you got an equal sign between two witnesses, two olive trees, and two lampstands. Same thing. A lot of Old Testament background here. So the two olive trees did a little digging in the temple referring to Zechariah's vision in Zechariah 4 where he has Joshua the high priest, Zerubbabel the governor. These are the two olive trees. That's you. As priests, like Joshua. As kings, like Zerubbabel. Lampstand. We've already seen that in Revelation 1 and 2, that this refers to the church. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. So there's an eye for an eye principle here. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and they have the power they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. As I meditated on the pictures here and I thought about our witness two things I want to bring to you. Number 1, your words have power. Your words have power. See fire coming from the mouth? Like Elijah calling fire down from heaven, like Jesus speaking with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Your words, Christian, have more power than you realize. I don't mean literal fire coming out of your mouth. Some of you people who like fire got real excited about this. You know, I can just blow things up by talking. It's awesome. No. Clearly, some Christians have taken this verse, the fire, to be symbolic of social media. I'm just going to destroy God's enemies with my post. Truth bomb, baby. Yeah. This is way more effective, trust me, than talking to them in person. I'm just going to comment and preach on their uh, social media post. Not what it means. Let me just clear that up. Exciting as that is, we're talking about sharing the gospel. 
speaking the truth in love, speaking mercy over broken people. When you do that, power. Power. Look at this. From, from the perspective of heaven, when you share the gospel, when you're clear in your Christian witness, it's like fire is coming out of your mouth. From the perspective of earth, it may look weak, ineffective. Eh, I didn't do much. Not from the perspective of heaven. I think a lot of you have trouble believing that. I think you minimize and downplay the impact and power of your words because you feel like, well, you know what? It just comes out wrong. I don't know those big Bible words. I don't know what they mean. I'm just trying to understand a little bit of my Bible. They're not going to listen to me anyway. I mean, what? who am I? I'm not articulate. Why would you ever trust what you can see? When you know there is an unseen spiritual world. So when, when you're witnessing to someone, when you're talking to them, you have no idea what's going on in their heart. You have no idea what you can't see. Do not assume, eh, what's the point? I didn't do anything. I don't know. Why, why even bother? Someone at work asks you, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Well, one thing we're doing is we're going to church. You know, that's really kind of like our favorite thing of the week. We get to be with our church family, get to worship God. It's pretty great. And you get the, big gulps, huh? All right. Not that any person in South Dakota or the Midwest has ever done that when you've said something to them, given you stone face and no reaction whatsoever, and you think, this is a disaster. Like, I just opened myself up. I was vulnerable. I talked about church, going to church, and then I got nothing. Don't assume. Don't assume. I can't tell you how many people have admitted to me that one thing someone said to them, they, they thought about it for years. They couldn't shake it. But what they projected was very different. Just nothing. Well, I suppose. Nothing. Don't assume. Don't be discouraged. If someone is like a sphinx when you share something about Jesus, okay, you can't read him, you get nothing. Don't underestimate what's happening in that moment and what the Holy Spirit can do with the power of your words. If you're a Christian, this was probably your story. You projected something very different than what was going on inside. Yes? Many of you? You didn't want people to know. When I was sharing the gospel with Carrie and we were walking through that season of life, I was like, give me something. Can you give me something? Like anything. I really don't know what's going on inside. And as like talking to her later, it was like, man, there was a ton of stuff going on. For you, someone said something to you, probably looking back, it's like, yeah, that wasn't much. That wasn't really powerful. It wasn't this out-of-the-park sermon that you heard. I mean, you might have read some weird passage in the Old Testament, and God just got it in you. And you wrestled with it, and you chewed on it, gnawed on it. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the power of God. 
So don't let appearances discourage you. You don't know what's going on. You don't know. Don't play God. You don't know. And listen to me. The only way to discover that power, to experience that power, to cultivate that power is to get on the field. You have to get on the field. All the study, all the reading, all the thinking, all the conversation with other Christians, it's good, it's great, fine, but at some point you've got to get on the field. And some of you are afraid to do that. You've got to start mixing it up. Last summer, over the summer, we were getting into softball in my house. It's, ba- it's summer, you know, it's baseball season. A couple of the girls, older two, were playing softball, and we're getting into it. And I'm trying to teach them the game of baseball, which, if you know baseball, to, to do it theoretically is actually very different, difficult. Like I'm trying to explain as we're watching Dodger games, no comment. We're watching Dodger games, and I'm trying to explain to them what's happening. They're asking questions. It's very difficult to, to explain all the intricacies of the game. So I'm trying my best. And, and all the time, we're wondering about Finley, my youngest daughter. We're wondering about Finley because we've never seen her play. We're wondering, like, is she going to take to the game? How's that going to go? And so one Saturday, I'm like, okay, family softball game. We're doing it. The whole nine yards. We're doing bases. We're doing ghost runners. We're getting into it. We get out there, and we get going, and Carrie and I are kind of like watching, like, okay, Finley comes up to the plate. What's going to happen? This is going to be interesting. First of all, she's lefty, which I love. Uh, She's red hair, which I love, too. You know, that's... I don't know why that matters with baseball, but I just like her red hair, okay? I just wanted to say it. So she comes up, and I'm pitching, and she probably swung and missed at like 30 to 50 pitches in a row. Just swung and missed. And then it was like pitch 51. I'm starting to just get bored. Yep, yep, I know, I know. you hear about that later. And... Line drive straight at my face. And I'm on the ground like a little girl laughing, you know, because she knocked me over. I wasn't even ready for anything. And it was a rope right up the middle. Now, when she felt that power of that hit, oh, she lit up. She did a little bat flip, you know. She just started walking around, strutting. And she swung and missed at other pitches, but now she's just spraying balls to all fields, Okay. Just ropes because she felt the power. She tasted it. And she swung and missed a lot. But she was out there on the field. Now you, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have power as a witness. You do. You may not know it, but you do. You've got to get on the field to discover it, to taste it. And once you do, oh, it's exciting. Oh, it's fun. Oh, it juices you up. When you see people start responding to the gospel, when someone is converted, do you believe that can happen through you? Because it can. It absolutely can. Oh, now we're having fun. Now I'm free. Now I'm opening up. Oh, I feel that power of the Holy Spirit. It's there. It's there. Don't suppress. You've got to get on the field. And you'll swing and miss. So what? So what? You swing and miss. 
you share with somebody, nothing happens, they never come to church, they don't ever believe in Jesus. So what? You swung. Got to get on the field. Number two, your witness should be tinged with sadness. Your witness should be tinged with sadness. Remember the witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. That's weird to us, but in that day, you wore like a burlap sack kind of thing, clothing over, over yourself. And basically the idea is the mourning, the grief that I feel in my heart, I'm expressing externally in my clothing. So sackcloth and ashes, they would put black ash on their bodies at times. Um, Tear your clothes. This is expressing externally what's going on internally. So as God sends you as a witness into your home, your work, your extended family, your neighborhood, there should be a tinge of sadness for those who are not responding to the gospel and hardening their hearts. Less of, man, they just don't get it. I mean, I don't understand how you could think that way. Being influenced by this secular culture, that's what's going on. Less of that and more of, and it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. I'm not going to stop praying for him. I'm not going to give up. I don't want him to go to hell. See, Christians, when it comes to evangelism and talking about the things of God, can be far too focused on winning an argument and not focused enough on winning a soul. What is it for you? When you get into these conversations, is it more about scoring points, winning an argument, or is it about a person who's going to spend eternity in heaven or hell? That's it. It's one or the other. should break our heart that Jesus spreads a feast of grace, invites all to come, and billions of people would rather starve. Verse 7. And when they finished their testimony, pause, I think this alerts us that John is now seeing the future, the end of history. Just before the seventh trumpet sounds and Jesus returns, there's a point at which the witness of the church is complete. I think that's what he's seeing here. So now we've, we've shifted kind of from past, present, future, everywhere in between where we are now to now we're looking at the end. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This is escalation, the height of persecution in world history. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So John is referencing Jerusalem where the Lord was crucified, Sodom, Egypt, all I think symbolizing a world aligned against God. Later in a couple chapters he'll call it Babylon. I think we're talking about the same thing here. Okay? You think of Jerusalem, there's a reason it was destroyed. 
for three and a half days, short period of time, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So, a strong demonic force, a beast, comes on the scene at the end, tries to wipe out the church. And as the Christians are dying, the world throws a party. They don't even bury him. Why? Why would they do that? Because the life of a Christian, my friends, is a mirror. The life of Jesus was a mirror. When you are around him, it exposed what's going on inside of you. Yes? You felt that before. You're, 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 you know the sin that you just committed and you're in the presence of someone who you respect, godly person, and you feel it. It doesn't feel good. You're exposed. When you're around Jesus, you are very aware of your sin, your shame, your hypocrisy. And people do not like that. They, they don't like it so much that they kill them. We don't have to feel that anymore. Okay, can you just like go away forever? Same is true for you. When John says you have the power to shut the sky, turn the water into blood, he's saying your witness, your life is a judgment. I'm not saying be judgmental. I'm saying just by being a Christian, it is a judgment. You're confronting unbelievers with the truth that they're wrong. And people don't like to be told they're wrong. People don't like to feel that. This is why, uh, if you've ever experienced this, non-Christians apologize to you when they cuss. Like They don't apologize to the kid they said it in from. They, they apologize to you because they know you're a Christian. I, I know you don't do that. I'm sorry, I just slipped out. They're not really sorry in a deep sense, but they just make them uncomfortable because the fact that you don't cuss, and they did, shines a light on them and exposes them. Maybe they did something wrong, so, hey, I'm sorry about that. You know. That's why they do that. Unless God is working in someone's heart, you do not want to be confronted with your spiritual ugliness. That's why they're rejoicing when the Christians are dead. We don't have to feel that anymore. We can do what we want. And no one's confronting us with their life of like, maybe there's an alternative that is true and we're wrong. I think probably some of you feel that way today. Like, I got things I've done, I got guilt, I got shame, and I don't like to feel those things. I don't like to feel it. I don't want to feel it. And so I suppress it, I stay away from people like that, I don't want to deal with it. And really, you feel trapped. And I would just say to you, you're not. You don't have to be trapped by that. There is a way out. This does not have to be what happens to you. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ 
he stared directly into all the things that you've done, and he took them upon himself to give you a way out. He allowed himself to be trapped by guilt, shame, unrighteousness. He became evil. Your evil attached itself to him. And he looked into that and he did it anyway. So that you have a way out. You're not trapped. You don't have to feel that way anymore. You can be free because of what he has done for you. Today's the day. Today's the day. can't see him. I can't, I can't present anything visual for you here to convince you. It's an act of faith, but it's faith based on reality. It's real. And if you trust in him, he takes your sin upon himself and he gives you his righteousness. A great exchange. And you have a way out where your conscience is clean, baby. You are free. You don't have to hide anymore. Holy Spirit, will you work right now in someone's heart? Will you work right now in someone's heart? Let's keep moving. Verse 11. Wrap it up here. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. So they're dead, but now something's happening. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. I can't spend as much time on the details here, and it's difficult. This is difficult, but here's the basic logic. Christians lose. God shows they actually won. World watches, freaks out. People get saved. That's the REV version, the really efficient version. Okay, I looked it up. That's what happens. That's the gist. I don't know exactly how it happens. It's hard to know. How God is vindicating Christians here, but He is. When He says from heaven, come up here, somehow He's showing the world, these people were right. And I approve of how they lived. I don't approve of how you lived. Even though you thought you won, and you killed them, get rid of them, just like you tried to get rid of Jesus. Didn't work. Let me just encourage you. And some of you need to hear this today. Your life matters. Your life matters. I know depression is real. I know thoughts of suicide, very real. But to hear the whisper that your life does not matter is a lie. Oh, it's a lie. The great church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is seed. 
Heard that before? The blood of the martyrs is seed. I would add to that, if I may, the life of every Christian is seed. All your sacrifices, all your moments where you feel like giving up and you don't. Every time that all you want to do is, is crash into a chair after a long day and you sing, Jesus loves me, to your kids. All your battles with sin, where it's besetting and it's over again and again. Am I ever going to get through this? Am I ever going to conquer this? Am I ever going to have victory in this? Every time you ask forgiveness of someone, and every bone in your body, in your pride, says don't do it. Dig in. And you ask for forgiveness anyway. Every time you drag yourself to church, which maybe you did this morning. Sacrifice, sacrifice, death, death. You know what those are? Seeds. Seed after seed after seed for the kingdom of God. And do not doubt me. Resurrections are coming. Every time we die a death, the power of God creates a resurrection. John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much Fruit. Jesus did it first. Sowed his life in death on the cross. And look at the fruit. Amazing. Now it's your turn. That's what it means to be a witness. And you will be vindicated one day, certainly resurrection day, but on many days, God will say, come up here. Your life, your sacrifices, your, your commitment to him is worth it. Because out of every death, he brings resurrection. He does not waste your sacrifice. He does not waste your death. One day, your kids will have kids, and they will tell their kids, my mom and dad, they sang to me. They prayed with me when I went to bed. I'll always remember that, and now I'm doing it to you. Whatever it is, God's not going to waste that. Trust me. So, big picture. You are protected, you are loved, you are sent out. Just go be who you are without fear. You don't have to be afraid of anything or anyone. Just be who you are and watch God work. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray for your empowering presence in our lives. As we go out into the world this week and we don't know what waits for us, we do know who is with us. And so I pray for great power. I pray for steps of faith in the lives of these brothers and sisters to get on the field, to mix it up, to take risks because the, the matter is urgent. The hour is urgent. Lord, not that we trust in ourselves, not that we trust in how we say it or getting it just right, but we trust in you. And all we want to be is faithful. All we want to do is, is testify faithfully to who you are as we take the stand every day. Thank you for that honor. Thank you for that privilege. Be with us, we pray. Amen.
come to the Lord's table today and um, just thinking about the, the supper, the meal. And, and we just encourage you as you receive it today to ask the Lord for strength. Ask the Lord for courage. This is a spiritual meal. So just like when we're going to do something, whatever it is in our day, we eat. Yes? Good breakfast in the morning. We go on our day. This is your spiritual food. This is the meal. The word has been preached, proclaimed, and now you get to see it and taste it and take it in. It is his body. It is his blood in a mysterious way. The grace of God gets in us as we receive it with faith. So I would just encourage you as we pause and do that, um, ask him for strength. Ask him to use the death of Jesus on your behalf to give you courage to live like him. So as the men, you can come forward. We always want to be clear that this is a meal for Christians. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please do not take this meal, but think on it. Reflect on it, what it means. Read to you from Luke 22. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the bread, um, for your body. Lord, you were physically mutilated. Your body was crushed, destroyed as you went to Calvary. And then if that weren't enough, Lord, spiritually you were crushed. Because when the Father looked at you, all he saw was every sin that had ever been committed by your people, by us. And you were separated from him for the first time. You were exiled as we should be exiled. You felt wrath. The wrath that we should have felt. And so we say thank you and we remember that is what you did for us. Give us strength, Lord. Give us faith through it. In your name, amen.